Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Big game is here, and you can get in on all the action at betonline.ag. What better way to watch the big game this Sunday but having a little action on the side on the big game. Tampa Bay, first team in history to have the title game right there on their home field, a three-and-a-half-point dog to Kansas City. So let's see what happens. Hundreds of props on the game are there as well at betonline.ag, including the game MVP, margin of victory, even the length of the national anthem. So it's always available online or right there on your mobile device. Visit BetOnline today. This is the Kingdom of Pod. Jeff Caves here in Flower Mound, Texas. Here we are with the second uh, National Letter of Intent Day. We'll talk Boise State recruiting here shortly. You'll also hear from a former Boise State administrator, Tim Leonard, who's now the athletic director at Towson University near Baltimore. He'll talk about the Boise State athletic director's job, the UCF job that he'd like to get, uh, the path for Boise State into the Power Five, and how Tim sees uh, the FCS uh, football division and how they could adapt to a new format. He was also, by the way, the former uh assistant BAA uh, executive director there at Boise State. He's a graduate and also a Twin Falls native. Talk a little bit more about the Super Bowl coming up and maybe a personal memory on how things have changed in a former Boise State player who played in the Super Bowl and I had an opportunity to attend that game and how much different things are some 33 years later for the Super Bowl. Then an ad on Brian Harson and how he's doing at Auburn and the recruiting rankings coming out on the Auburn Tigers. Let's get back, though, to the top of this conversation. Boise State recruiting, of course, most of the done work having been done in December by the former staff, Brian Harson. It's a good thing there's a lot of open communication between, I'm sure, that former staff, Coach Harson and Coach Avalos. Only a couple of names came forward that they signed here in February. Uh, maybe up to five more players to go uh, this spring or summer or whenever they get around to it. I'll talk about that in a second in the transfer portal uh, emergence and how this could be revolutionizing uh, college football. But uh, Habibi Likio, a running back transfer from Oregon, uh, I think if you look at it, it's got to be a great fit or Andy Avalos isn't bringing him in. And I think it's really fortunate that you're getting a kid that he knows quite well because he was at Oregon. It's not always the case with transfers. You're going to be relying on other people's opinion, but uh, we saw how shorthanded Boise State was at at the running running back position. So I think that's a, a great grab. It's not a traditional recruiting uh, pattern, if you will, but it could be a highly effective one. Uh, the other a local signee, Ben Ford, who will be transitioning out of quarterback where he played at Eagle High School quite well. Uh, he's actually going to be gray shirting at Boise State, so his clock won't even start for another year. You can do that with in-state kids. It's a little easier for them perhaps to pay their own way for a while to get uh, things cranked up. That tells me a little bit about the numbers challenges that uh, Coach Avalos may be facing at Boise State right now with the rules that have been put out there by the NCAA, these super seniors who are going to get a chance to come back, and that announcement came out with eight players coming back. You know, who knows what level of aid those players are taking from the university? Is it 100%? Is it half? Uh, maybe all of them have the same deal they had before. Maybe it's some variety of that. Uh, I know that that was a point of contention before Coach Harson left that 
He wanted to sign as many kids as possible, go over the limits, and let somebody else worry about gender equity, which states you can't have that many more scholarship males than females in your athletic department, and the financial commitment that it takes because the NCAA has come out and said you can not only sign your 25, but you know you can have these other eight guys on scholarship too, so you can go over your limits. And not every school can afford to do it. And uh, I'd be surprised if you know Boise State isn't one of those schools right now where they have to watch what they did. Just looking at the moves they've made um, with the coaching salaries and Coach Abelos' uh, salary, uh, maybe that's uh, part of this as well, that uh, maybe it was a trade-off. Maybe Coach Abelos said, okay, if I can get more players, then I'll take the reduction in staff salaries and in my own salary from where Harson was at if we can get more scholarships. I don't think there's been much conversation about that publicly, but uh, to me, those are extremely important behind-the-scenes conversations. But what does, you know, get my attention in in all of this is how this transfer portal is going to affect Boise State's recruiting in the future, and I think most of us listening to this, of course, are most concerned with how the transfer portal can affect Boise State University. But I looked at the transfer portal just to get a little better handle on it because – It's been around now about three years. It was designed, I learned, by somebody from the NCAA. And the purpose of it was to make it easier for everybody to transfer and have all the information in one place online where you can see their eligibility, you can see their grades, their transcripts, their their email, who they are, where they want to go if they have that kind of a preference. And it made it easier for compliance officers and uh, coaches and players alike uh, to get into this transfer portal. So uh, that's pretty much how it was designed. And once it was designed, you know, then players could simply go to the compliance directors on campus and rather than have to go to the coach and go right to the compliance director and say, put my name in the portal. I want out. And in that situation... Uh, the compliance director, by NCAA rule, has 48 hours to get back to the player and say, okay, it's done. You're in the transfer portal. Uh, they expect in that 48 hours for these players who want to go in the transfer portal to you know, take stock of what they're doing because they risk going off scholarship at the school they're leaving and not getting a scholarship somewhere else and not having the money to continue their college education. And they want to make sure that these kids communicate that to their parents. Uh, Sometimes kids will do things on an emotional level before anything else. That's understandable. And after that 48-hour period is done, these compliance directors have to have made that happen. And the player themselves uh, can either indicate what schools they're interested in transferring to and indicate whether or not they even want to be contacted by any schools by leaving their email address or not some kids have an idea of exactly where they want to go and that's what they're going to do and they don't want to be sort of recruited all over again the way they were in high school and and not do it so that's how the transfer portal works and how it came about and yes schools can start contacting kids if they've indicated they don't mind being contacted and here's their email address i was looking at how this has all impacted recruiting and ran across something in the Dallas Morning News uh, that was written about a quarterback. And this is a quarterback that is not just another kid. His name is C.J. Rogers. He's from Argyle High School. And the reason C.J. Rogers is important is because 
He is at the second to highest level of high school football in the state of Texas. He led his team to a 16-0 record. Uh, they won the state championship. Uh, he threw 48 touchdowns, and, and he's not 5'8", 160 pounds. He's 6'3", 205 pounds, and he threw for more touchdowns than any other quarterback in the Dallas Metroplex area uh, that is going off to Auburn, Texas A&M, LSU, all, all these big schools. And he was a Johnny-come-lately. He didn't start until his senior year, so there's some other circumstances. But as they went to these high school football coaches, uh, they asked him why C.J. Rogers was given absolutely zero FBS college football offers. And the, the coaches all spoke up. It's at the transfer portal. The transfer portal is hurting uh, the ability of high school seniors to get scholarship offers from Power 5 or Group of 5 schools or even FCS schools because coaches would uh, tend to maybe go for kids who are coming out of the transfer portal that are proven and they've got tape on them and they've already competed against uh, upper-level college athletes. So I looked at Coach uh, Avalos and, and what he's done. We'll talk about Coach Harson's recruiting uh, after we – uh, get into the Super Bowl conversation at the end of this uh, Kingdom of Podcast. But, you know, in, in, in looking at what Avalos had to say, that he, he talked about as, as much as five different players that could still be getting a scholarship from him at whatever point in time. Talked about DBs and D-line and O-line. So he's got an idea, like a lot of coaches do, that maybe we should be going into the transfer portal for immediate needs. Uh, of course, that's going to hurt the junior college track, but you know, how does this all affect uh, Boise State? What's this new model going to look like? Because the transfer portal is loaded up. It's not like uh, th there isn't. There's going to be tons of kids that don't come out of the transfer portal uh, with any kind of scholarship activity, and they're going to have to decide what they're going to do. Uh, there's never been more kids in it. Of course, right now, the NCAA has said you can transfer and be eligible immediately. A lot of things being COVID-sensitive uh, right now. So last Wednesday, there were 2,900 kids in the transfer portal, 1,550 of them uh, from the FBS, and they don't have to wait. They can transfer right away. So if you, you look at that, uh, that's quite a few kids, man. That, that's quite a few scholarship athletes who have already proven themselves that they can play somewhere, how well they can play. That's a different issue. Of course, there are some circumstances to work through in this transfer portal. But just consider this for a second. Uh, there's a lot of legislation coming on board. The uh, name, image, and likeness uh, will ultimately be solved in the next uh, 12 to 24 months, whether it be a federal law or state by state by state or state by state by state first, and then ultimately they get a federal law passed. Uh, but kids are going to start looking at uh, their off-field revenue opportunities, and they're going to start taking into account where can I make the most amount of money if I'm that kid. And there's going to be some circumstances that will play into that. So uh, this factors in. But just imagine uh, you're a high school senior. And to me, there's two different types of kids. You're coming out. You're good enough to play at either the Power Five or Group of Five level as an FBS football player on scholarship. And... You either have the resources to pay for college on your own with your parents or yourself, or you don't. And to me, you go into two different pots right away. Now, of course, uh, there's all kinds of things that have been written about uh, great quarterbacks and the money it takes to become a great quarterback. And 
these kids aren't on you know uh, scholarships based on their economic status. They're on scholarships based on their talent. Uh, there are other kids, of course, that have the talent but don't have the financial means to go to some of these schools, especially the private schools. You start looking at tuitions at the the, the, the Dukes, and Notre Dames, and Stanford's, uh, USC. Uh, even out-of-state tuition for some kids at the big public universities like Washington or, or UCLA. I mean, that gets pretty expensive. So what kind of paths are we creating for high school seniors? Because here we have quarterback A, say Rogers from Argyle, and quarterback B, Jones uh, from uh, Nampa, Nampa, Idaho. I don't care where he's from. And they don't get a scholarship. They don't get a scholarship to a group of five or even a power five school. What are they going to do? So they're good enough to play. There's no scholarships being given. Uh, maybe these schools were going for transfers. There's all kinds of graduate transfers and transfers at the quarterback position. And those two kids have some choices to make. Of course, perhaps there is an FCS school that wants to offer them a scholarship. They could take that. Uh, but if maybe you're the kid from Argyle and you have the resources financially, you would prefer to walk on to a Power of Five school where you've been invited, hope to earn a scholarship, and in the meantime, you have the financial means to pay the tuition and pay uh, your way on. Now, the kids who don't have those financial means, they're not going to walk on, certainly at a private institution like Baylor, Maybe they'll walk on at a state school if they live in state and be able to afford or go into debt for the time they're off scholarship and do that. But wouldn't an increasingly higher number of people who don't have the financial means, perhaps the Jones quarterback from Nampa, uh, wouldn't those kids uh, be headed off to FCS? Wouldn't they head off to Montana or Montana State or Idaho, wherever they can get a scholarship? I would think so. Uh, the other option would be going to junior college, and that's not free. So I think FCS schools may see more recruits. Uh, I think some of the FBS uh, schools in the group of five category, like Boise State, uh, may be looking to pick off more and more of these power five transfers where uh, those kids you know, head off to Ohio State or uh, whatever you know, top 25 program you can name at the skill positions and they just can't get on the field enough and they want more stats and they want to make some money off the field, maybe they'll go to a Boise State, get on the field, make some money uh, for themselves off the field and certainly get more playing time. Uh, the other factor to consider here is, all right, let, let's look at the kids that say, you know what, I don't have the money to walk on to either a state school, in-state or out-of-state or a private school. Uh, I'm going to take the scholarship opportunity I have from Montana State, and I'm going to go there. Uh, I'm in Bozeman, Montana. I'm not from here. Uh, I don't know anybody. Frankly, my social media followers are quite low, so I'm not going to make money on that, and I'm just going to prove myself. I'm going to ball out, as they say, and I'm going to transfer. And I'm going to go back to my hometown and I'm going to transfer back to the University of Texas or I'm going to transfer back to North University of North Carolina where I'm well known and I have a following. And if I do well, it's a big state with a big city and a lot of opportunities for myself and I'm going to go there. And it's a one-time transfer and they don't have to sit down. I think this is all feasible and possible 
And I don't think a lot of coaches like it because it's going to complicate their lives. Uh, but they're already in the high school level here in, in Texas, which is you know the top of the food chain of high, for high school football, screaming at the top of their lungs that there are too many high school seniors with no scholarship offers. Now, the coaches have some motivation here in the state of Texas at the high school level to be saying these types of things because they get pressure from parents, real pressure. <laughs> pressure for playing time because their kid wants a scholarship. Their kid needs to get a scholarship. And the coaches are there to provide that and present that opportunity. So there's a lot on the line here. I do think we're in for some changes. Uh, how does this affect a Boise State? Well, uh, it may be if once we get this transfer rule uh, solidified, if they go with ultimately the idea that everybody's entitled to one transfer with no ramifications, you can play immediately, and the name, image, and likeness legislation is passed, and either on a federal level or a state level, kids are able to make money off of their name or their image or their likeness, I think you're going to see kids be more mindful of staying closer to home if they have as good or better option where they've already got following. I think they'll start promoting themselves even more than they do now uh, at the ages of, say, ninth through 12th grade. And uh, then it may make some sense if, if you're, let's just take Texas, uh, where I am. Uh, if you're a high school football player, you're a rock star anyway in this state. They take it pretty serious. And there's a lot of states out there that do not look at high school football in the same way. So if they've already built up a following and they can go to an in-state school and their following gets even bigger and that in-state school happens to be close to Houston, if it's Texas A&M, or Austin, if or San Antonio, if it's the University of Texas, uh, then why wouldn't uh, they do that? And if they're an FBS player, and they're not Power 5, but they're a group of five, and they're in Texas, maybe they go to the University of North Texas, a group of five school, because they'll have all the access to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and if they can do real well, maybe they can get their Twitter followers, their Instagram numbers up high enough to where some product or service or local company will hire them to promote their, uh, their company. I think that's where we're headed. Um, that's at least how I'm sold on it. I am concerned that some of the schools in the smaller states and smaller cities uh, may start struggling. And I do think that's one reason that we saw uh, one of the first schools to be an early adopter to getting prepared for kids that are on name, image, and likeness uh, tracks to make some dough was the University of Nebraska because I think they're vulnerable. They're not close to a big city. I know they have a great following, but it's a small state. Uh, they've not been doing great. Uh, they're in a big conference, uh, but they're competing against the Michigans and Ohio States and Penn States who are either in heavily populated areas with a lot of opportunities or tremendous alumni bases with uh, great uh, uh, influence on you know following on their social accounts and, and letting others know they should do the same. It, it's it's going to change rapidly, and I, and I think we're, we're headed there. And I don't know that it's bad or good. I just believe... That is the state soon to be for college football. Before we get to our conversation with Tim Leonard, a former Boise State BAA uh, assistant executive director uh, and currently the athletic director at Towson State, uh, I will mention that I will tell a great story about the Super Bowl and how far it's come. A former Boise State player, Marcus Cook, who was in it, and then take a 
quick look at Brian Harson's recruiting at Auburn and uh, the different things that have hit for Coach Harson uh, right away. But let's get into our conversation and our interview on this edition of the Kingdom of Pot. Eighth season at uh, Towson University. It's about 10 minutes from Baltimore. Tim Leonard's joining me here on the Kingdom of Pod. You may remember the name. He's a graduate from Boise State, grew up in Twin Falls, was the assistant director for the Bronco Athletic Association at Boise State, also worked at Illinois State, moved on to Central Florida, where you're an AVP for development there, amongst other things, Tim. You had a good run. You're also the senior associate athletic director for external uh, work at SMU. And here you are, eight years into Towson. Welcome aboard. And that's quite a journey for a kid out of Twin Falls to stop through all those spots, huh? Yeah. And first off, let me say thanks for having me on, Jeff. Uh, excited to be on here with you. But yeah, it's been a, a remarkable journey. And that's kind of how my wife and I look at it. It's just, it's a journey. And, you know, where's life going to take us next? So we've had fun with it. Yeah. Well, looking at that, you know, that, uh, that path, I know that the athletic director's job at Boise State had the interest of you and a lot of other uh, people. And as you look back on it, you know, how do you internalize what did or didn't happen for you there? Well, it, you know, that's a great, great job. It's a great university. It's my alma mater, a place that has a lot of really fond memories for me. And I uh, love the place. My brother went to school there. A lot of a lot of lifelong friends from there. Um, you know, ultimately, it was just something they said they had really no interest in talking to me about. So uh, I, I completely understand. And and so um, that's that's just fine. I'm, I'm happy here. Well, let's learn a little bit about Towson, because I think while this is where you've been eight years, Tim, your experience is also, as I mentioned, at places that are in the American Athletic Conference at SMU and Central Florida and you spent time at Boise State, not in the American Athletic Conference, but I want to talk about sort of the bigger picture. But as we frame it, you've also spent eight years in the Colonial with Towson, uh, an FCS football program. And I know there's basketball and lacrosse and other sports. So just describe the athletic department as it relates to the revenues and, and how it runs and, and your successes over the eight years. So we frame it as we move forward. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, every school is a little bit different and uh, their challenges are unique. And, and you know, when I got the job here, uh, they were in a situation where financially they were upside down, had some budget issues, um, had a lot of Title IX issues. There was uh, uh, a plan to drop a couple of men's sports Um and, and so there was just, there was a lot of work that, that needed to be done. So um, we got that cleaned up. We've, we've gotten our, our budget solidified. It's, you know, there, there's never enough revenue, probably at any level, um, particularly at an FCS level. But we've been able to do some things to, to make our budget um, stable. And uh, I'm proud to say we, we haven't had a deficit in the time that I've been here. And hmm. um, it, this is also uh, the most competitive time in the, the history of the athletics department here at Towson, um, which is something that we're all very proud of. Um, however, uh, my expectations are that we're going to be even more competitive than we've been. And we've had some success in, in really all of our sports at some point in time, the time I've been here. 
my challenge is is to get it to where we are consistently nationally competitive in our in our programs and not have the spikes um, that come along with it. And that's just part of a of a growing program. I think if you look at the history of any of these programs, it's hard to get one to go up and stay there. Mm-hmm. It's it's usually like this for a little while. And our goal is to to get it to continue to be successful and competitive every year. Kim, before I get your impressions on Boise State, I want to ask you about sort of the characteristics of SMU and, and Central Florida, schools that I think Boise State fans are familiar with yet don't ultimately know much about and two very unique places in the group of five with unbelievable resources, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, they're totally different from each other. Um, you know, SMU, a uh, uh, relatively small private school mm-hmm. um, that has almost as many grad students as as undergrad students wow. in an extremely wealthy uh part of Dallas, as well as one of the more wealthy neighborhoods in, in all of the whole country, really. Um, a lot of very successful alums. Uh, fundraising is, is certainly something that you can get done at SMU. Hmm. Um, they're very proud of their um, alums that have gone on to be very successful and, and aren't shy about asking them. And, and uh, as a fundraiser, that was a, a fun environment to be in, but, but very different. Um, you know, a school that has one of the prettiest campuses, by the way, I've, I've ever seen. In fact, on my days off, I used to drive back to campus to just go explore the buildings. The architecture there is phenomenal. Um, but it's also a campus that has just, you know, a handful of colleges. So your uh, educational opportunities are smaller than you would be at a large state institution. Like Central so Florida. Then, <laughs> like Central Florida, yes. So, you know, I, I went to UCF directly from Boise. And when I got there, that place was uh, Division One in name only. Um, and by the time I left, boy, it, we had it built up and it set for success. And obviously, they're, they're seeing that success now uh, and have put themselves in a, in a good position. But that's a school that's, you know, 60,000 students. Um, you know, the student fee is a significant driver for them uh, at UCF, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a high student fee. It's just, you know, when you multiply it by 60,000 students, um, that can be a significant uh, revenue source for them. But most importantly, now they've gotten to the point where they're, they're filling their stadiums and filling that basketball arena. And, um, you know, that's a lot of revenue coming in for them. Well, they've got an athletic director's position open as well. Is that something you'd be interested in? Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of politics in these these things, but uh, yeah, I'm I, I'm aware of the situation there. All right, let's let's get into a little bit about Boise State, Tim, and and how we look at what's going to happen here. You've just described two schools that you're very familiar with and your own. You know enough about Boise State's situation. We have a pandemic. There's going to be a financial reckoning and a comeback, sort of a bottoming out. So in these different schools and places, how do you see the rebuild? Will it come back the way it was at these four places, or will it be at a different spot? Um, it's really hard to, to project. I would say they're all going to be in a different spot. 
I think we all are going to be in a, a different spot. Um, a lot of it just depends on on the funding model for the, for that institution. Um, you know, the the in pressure to generate revenue, self-generated revenue is is going to be extremely high. And now you're talking about going through an entire cycle, an entire year where fans now have got new habits and people that were accustomed to going to games and tailgating and doing all those things, you know, they, they form new habits. Are they going to come back the same way they, they did? Mm-hmm. Don't know. Um, you know, we'll find out. I, I, I think there will. I think there's still going to be that market. We're social by nature, human beings. And I think people miss that aspect of it. But I think it's, it's going to be different. Uh, you know, viewership has gone down during the pandemic for sporting events. So, you know, are people going to come back and watch that? Is that technology continues to change in terms of, of television and, and streaming and, and all of those things. So there's just, there's a lot of unknowns uh, about the future of, of college athletics right now. It's, it's really kind of a, an interesting yet scary time. Well, at the group of five level, one of the arguments for Boise State, for example, is, hey, you need a, a better cash flow, so you better get that TV money and get it wherever you can and get it better than what you have it if you can control that. You were in the American Athletic Conference or the Big East, and there is an opportunity at one point or another, reportedly, if it's still there, you never know. As we tape this, I think it is, uh, for Boise State to move their football program over there. And I would think that one of the caveats to do so, Tim, would would be the promise that Oresco may have that they're going to make a move to get a guaranteed spot in an expanded college football playoff and be that power sixth conference. How feasible do you see that? Well, it's it sounds good. Um, and if that happens, then obviously that would be a, um, a move that would make sense for Boise State. Whether or not that happens, it, it's hard to say. I, I think the challenge with all of this, and one of the, I think, big problems in college athletics is that, you know, this isn't a true free market, right? This is not an open market. And for someone to say, well, we're going to get that automatic bid to the, the power, you know, make it the power six mm-hmm. and all the revenue that, that comes along with it, you can't just go earn that, right? Somebody has to allow you in. And the folks that are going to allow you in, they're not going to do it if it means less revenue for them. Mm-hmm. So in order for all that to happen, there's going to have to be television networks and all kinds of folks that are going to come in and say, yes, these are the schools that make sense and would make the networks more money if we brought them into this. And if so, we'd be willing to pay so that the schools that join would get that increased revenue. And yet those that are already there would at least remain whole, if not grow. So it's a, you know, it's a challenge. Hmm. Well, another way in per se, Tim, uh, could be the way Utah sort of orchestrated things, which was more on the government model of action where Orrin Hatch 
was quite involved in how he felt Utah was being treated by the old BCS. And, and lo and behold, it wasn't long, and they had themselves a spot in the pack, not 10, but soon to be 12. And there are advocates that say you need political pressure to, to truly make it happen. It may be more likely for that to happen to get you into the college football playoff with a guaranteed spot than it would be to wait to see the Power Five invite you to their party, wouldn't it? Yeah, and, and all of these cases, whenever you've seen, you know, teams or universities move from one conference to another, um, particularly at the highest level, you know, politics has always played a part in that, right? There's mm -hmm. always going to be politicians that are involved in that process one way or the other. Um, but the example that you gave, one, I think that's a great example. Uh, it certainly worked well for the University of Utah. But I think that's where this is all headed to now anyway. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I was just watching a, a webinar right now on this whole, you know, the NLI and the um, student-athlete bill of rights that's being proposed in, in Congress right now. And there's so many different uh, bills being bantered around right now, thrown around. Um, it's, it's something that politicians certainly have their eyes on right now and are looking to make changes. Whether those changes are going to be positive and, and sustainable as well as equitable uh, remains to be seen. But, but I certainly think the battle is, is going to move to, to Washington on a lot of these issues. Well, it feels like with the name, image, and likeness legislation, there's a push to say, you know, we can't have one rule in Maryland and another in Idaho and another in Texas and yet another one in Florida and California. We know you're already going to do whatever you want. They want a national rule for all of this. And the Student Bill of Rights, to me, as an athletic director, that that's like uh, the X factor. You never know what they want now, you know, how much more or different uh, that evolves too. So how does that all play into forcing change, you think, these types of things? Well, it'll definitely force change because it'll change how we operate, no doubt. Um, what they're really trying to come at, go after is, is money. There, there's no doubt about yeah. that, right? And that's right. what everybody wants, right? Right. That's why we're sitting here talking. That's why being in a specific conference matters because it's all about money. And, you know, I think what the the NLI and the, the Bill of Rights, Student Athlete Bill of Rights, what they're trying to do is get the money that is going to some of these high profile coaches and have that redirected down to um, student athletes and you know, what I would say is they're, they're not wrong. Um, you know, I, I don't think we've had very good guardrails in place um, in the NCAA. And what you've seen is an accumulation of wealth at the top with no checks and balances. And as a result, it's caused a, a great deal of disparity and a, a lot of issues. And then that's really what this is about. It's people saying, look, enough that there's going to be that kind of wealth and it's only going to go to a handful of people and these individuals, we want it to be spread out more. I, I think they're on the right road. The challenge is there is no solutions with these suggestions on how to fix the problems it will cause if you go down that road. 
Hmm. That that's the biggest problem with all of that. So as you look at uh, Boise State and how they want to increase really their their cash flow, we can paint it a lot of different ways. They really just want to increase their cash flow. The state doesn't want it to come from taxes or their budgets. They'd really like it to come from TV networks. How do you how do you play this if you're them? Right? I mean, if they stay in the Mountain West, Tim, they know what their cash flow is and their costs yeah. keep coming up and – there are some marketing challenges in continually selling those season ticket packages with the same schools coming in. People tend to crave more. Even independence has been brought up as a potential solution. What are your thoughts on what a Boise State solution could look like? Well, you know, the, the television network, you know, that's what everybody wants, right? That's the obvious one is to get all that revenue from the, the television networks, which means you're going to have to be in a conference that has an outstanding television uh, contract. And, you know, right now there's five conferences that have some really good television packages and then there's everybody else. And, you know, the question becomes if they get into um, the American, what does that do for them from a television standpoint, revenue standpoint, excuse me, um, would the networks pay enough that makes them competitive? Would it allow you the opportunity to still have uh, a very competitive, nationally competitive men's basketball program, um, as well as the, your other sports, because you're going to need them to, to generate revenue as, as well. So there's a lot of factors that, that come into that. And you got to ask yourself, is that juice going to be worth the squeeze? And without having seen their the financials of, of those proposals, it's it's hard to say. Do you think anything will happen before the college football playoff contract expires? Or do you think there's enough need for dough where everybody's willing to start looking at before they take on private equity firms? There's a lot of this talk right now, guys. That even in California, they were starting to come in to the Pac-12 uh, that would really change college athletics. But if they get money desperate enough, Tim, maybe they'll approach the networks about expanding from four. Yeah, I do think that's going to happen because the the need for revenue is so great and that's going to be the way they're going to have to do that, right? The, the, the bigger that playoff gets – the more money there's there's going to be, and and so ultimately that's where we're going to go because the just the demand and need for money, particularly as we look at this bill that Blumenthal and 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 Booker Senators Blumenthal and Booker have put forth, where they're saying fifty percent of the revenue should go back to uh, student athletes. Well, that's a lot of money. <laughs> How are they going to fund all that? Right? I mean, that's it's. There's no solution for that part of it. Well, you are watching everything there in Towson, 10 miles from Baltimore with all the influence of professional sports, the Big Ten, and, and really every sport. I mean, is up and down your, your corridor. And we see out here in the West, the FCS, uh, and its future in the Big Sky Conference. It's not TV dependent. It's really alumni donation dependent. It's not even really attendance dependent. What's the future there, you think, Tim? Is it going to get repositioned 
if this pandemic goes another year, for example? Uh, yeah, I think FCS football could get repositioned. How? I don't know. It's it's one of those things, like a lot of things, to be quite honest with you. It, it could go one way or the other. Um, as revenues decrease for schools at our level and as expenses continue to rise, you know, it, it, it are, what's going to be the president's at these schools, what's going to be their tolerance for for pain, if you will, for for funding? And are they going to say, you know what, we've had enough, we're we're out of the football business? And I would hate to see that because ultimately, that will hurt everybody. You know, over time, the fewer football programs you have, that just means fewer opportunities, and it just keeps narrowing down. Um, and so, I don't think that's healthy for the game of football, but. We could see that if we don't uh, work together to try to protect it. At the same token, I could see it going the other way, Jeff. If we really got creative, the biggest challenge with FCS football is, you know, there's no uniformity. Um, you know, not everybody is is together. In fact, to be honest with you, everybody outside the Power Five is that way. Mm -hmm. And we really need to unite and come up with some, you know, common ground, some common principles that we want to abide by. And then I always say from an FCS standpoint, why are we trying to play the exact same game that they're playing at Alabama and Ohio State and Texas? Because if our goal is to get attention and get revenue, they're not going to watch Towson versus Delaware if James or excuse me, if Michigan and Ohio State are playing. They're, that's what they're going to watch. So I, I think we need to do something creative. And I've always said, you know, I don't know. I throw out harebrained ideas that I, I think they're worth exploring. I don't know if they're realistic, but do you go and do you play football in the spring? When right. major college football is done in the fall, right. television networks still have that appetite to show football. Could there right. be an opportunity there? Is there an opportunity uh, to do something different like, the CFL, they've been able to sustain a professional league for, you know, decades now, almost as long as the NFL. So they've kind of found their niche. And, you know, is that something we do and, and come up with, a, you know, like they do a wider field, three downs and, you know, you can go in motion, you know, all that crazy stuff they yeah. do, but it's worked for them. And I'm not saying that's what you do in FCS football. I'm just saying we, we need to get creative and do something to differentiate ourselves from FBS football other than a playoff at the end of the season. Well, they're going to, you know, tip their toes here in the springtime. Some schools are with FCS football. We'll yep. get a taste of it. It's going to start here at the end of February. Is, is Towson on that list or off? No, we opted out to play in the spring simply because of the fact that, you know, I, I said, Hey, look, if we make this a permanent thing, I'm all in because sure. I would love to see that. But the fact that we're going to try to play in the fall uh, of 21, right. Uh, you know, we sat down with our, our players, the student athletes, the coaches, our, our sports medicine team looked at how many injuries you would typically have in a season. Right. And how many, surgeries and how long guys are out for 
and then lay that over the schedule, it says, well, then if we start fall camp again, we start ramping up again and over the summer months and it, fall camp starts in August, we got that season, well, shoot, we're going to be out X amount of our key players. And is that what we want to do or do we want to and try to play in a season that is going to be kind of crazy to begin with? Or would we rather just try to get in shape, stay healthy, and get ready for the fall season? And so we asked our team and the, the student athletes had said, you know what, I'd rather just get ready to go in the fall than risk getting hurt in the spring and then miss a, a more traditional season. Wow. Well, Tim's uh, good to see you. Uh, a lot going on, a lot to keep a guy busy. We appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me. It's it's always good to to meet up with a fellow uh, Boise State alum, and uh, it, it's good hearing from you. All right, thanks once again to Tim Leonard for his thoughts on uh, not only what's happening at Towson University for him at the FCS level with football, but all his thoughts again on Boise State. We'll see what happens with him uh, with Central Florida. I want to talk a little bit about uh, my Super Bowl experience in 1988. I'm a former Boise State football player was in it. Then we'll touch on Brian Harson's recruiting situation at uh, Auburn University and what uh, took place there. But in 1988, um, I had an opportunity uh, to go to the Super Bowl at the old Murphy, Jack Murphy Stadium in San Diego, California. And Marcus Cook, as a teammate of mine who was in, uh, I don't know, maybe his second year or so at the Washington uh, football team, formerly known as the Redskins. So he's playing for the Redskins. He's not starting at defensive line. Uh, but he's rotating in quite a bit, and he's getting significant playing time. If you go back and look at the statistics, uh, I don't know that he had many there. He was a uh, interior defensive tackle. He'd also come out and play some end, but they, they had other guys that rushed the passer quite effectively. Uh, but that's really not the story. It, he did get his Super Bowl ring, and I, I was thankful that I even got a chance to go to the game because uh, Marcus just left a couple of tickets there for my dad and I. And we went to the Super Bowl. I don't even know that he had to pay for him at that time. I, I'd be curious to understand how it worked for him at that time. Uh, but I was close enough to him, and I said, hey, dude, we want to come watch you play. Uh, I'm from Los Angeles originally, so I went down to see my dad, and my dad and I said, well, let's just drive up to San Diego. It's a couple hours. No big deal. We'll go to the game. And uh, this is in 1988, and the Super Bowl, uh, while it was – a significantly viewed event really wasn't this big social phenomena because we made no special plans about when we would leave, when we would get there, uh, where we would go, what we would do, what we weren't going to go hitting parties. <laughs> Think about any of that stuff. I'll never forget in 1988 driving into Jack Murphy Stadium and it was like any other football game. Uh, it was a little bit busy, but really not that bad in terms of traffic to get in there. And if you've ever been there, you know it's sort of in this valley area. Um, we kind of drove right up and just parked. I've been to Super Bowls, of course, since then, even been to one in Tampa uh, with massive barricades. You have to walk. There's like only one or two entrance points for the entire stadium now. You have to walk around moats and huge constructed walls around these stadiums to even get in. There's sort of Disneyland-type mazes of security to get through. It's really quite mind-boggling 
what has happened. There's live bands, like the Blue Man Group was playing in um, AT&T Stadium before the Pittsburgh Green Bay Super Bowl back in, I think that was 2010. They're playing for free, basically out on the concourse area. I mean, it's just changed dramatically. In 1988, uh, the, the halftime performer was Chubby Checker, man. <laughs> Chubby Checker. Who cares? Um, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass did the national anthem. It was the only time I had to go back and read that they had somebody actually do it without singing. So uh, that took place. But it was it was a great game, of course. Uh, the Redskins end up winning the football game and all of that. But uh, we, we met him after the game, and uh, he had some restaurant he was going to go to. And <laughs> I'll never forget Marcus Cook in a VW Volkswagen bus that he had a buddy of his drive down for the game that he got in after, and it had a – oh, I don't know, some kind of sunroof in it, and he stuck his head through it and went driving through San Diego celebrating his Super Bowl win pretty much anonymously. That's how much it's changed in in 33 years to the phenomena uh, that it is now. But Marcus Cook, a, a great Boise State football player who not only won that Super Bowl but was injured and got on another Super Bowl winning team uh, with the Washington Redskins as well. Last ad I want to make on uh, recruiting uh, I always find it interesting to take a look at a former Boise State coach when they uh, move off and see how that first recruiting class went. I'll never forget Coach Pete when he went off to the University of Washington. Of course, a lot of Boise State assistant coaches went with him for good reason, per se. And Boise State's recruiting class was quite affected that year. Uh, he took a lot of heat uh, from certain individuals, at least through social media, recruiting uh, people who really follow recruiting hard that uh, they weren't getting a high enough quality recruit at Washington. Uh, they were just taking too many Boise State kids that they already had contact with, and that wasn't going to cut it at the University of Washington. Well, you know, uh, there was Dante Pettis and some other kids that are in the NFL now <laughs> on that first class. And I was just curious on what that looked like for Brian Harson at uh, Auburn University. And uh, there were no recruits that I can tell, first of all, uh, that went from Boise State to Auburn for, for some pretty decent reasons. Uh, I did notice that when Brian Harson went over to the University of Auburn, of course, in December, and Malzahn's out of there, you know, he, he's got um, you know a, a lot of work to do, and he's got a staff to hire. He's in a new conference, new area of the country, and, and all that stuff. And their recruiting class at that time was ranked 48th in the country. Now. Before we get too carried away with this, you got to close your eyes for a minute and take yourself away from wherever you live now and move yourself to Auburn, Alabama, where, where they're rated in recruiting matters. It matters. They worry about it. It's important to them. They want to make sure you're doing everything in your power to be number two, if not number one in the SEC, and start knocking on Alabama's door. Well, in the face of what has happened at Alabama, you've got Auburn now with a 48th-ranked class, and you've got Alabama, their bitter enemy, with the top-ranked recruiting class at this point in the history of college football recruiting, which I realize means nothing. I understand all that. I'm trying to transfer you and put you into the mindset of an Auburn Tiger football fan, where it all matters to them. So here they are, 
and they hadn't had a great run. Harse is on a late, um, uh, sort of a late trajectory. He gets in there and he's, he, he signs a much smaller class. I think uh, seven was the total that they got, six or seven guys. And he goes from 48th up to number 30. And typically, Auburn, I researched, had been in the top 15, even top 10 in recruits. So it was a down year overall, but at least Harson and his staff moved the needle from 48 to 30 uh, for the locals that care about that stuff. So that's good. He has a couple of recruits to go. Uh, one could even be signing as, as recently as, uh, I think, February 5th. Uh, and and another may not be going to uh, Auburn, could be headed to Texas A&M. Uh, if both of those guys came in, they could end up at like number 20, which it all matters to these folks. It all starts adding up. Uh, I also found it interesting to read about where these recruits were coming from. Traditionally, Auburn has signed 85% of their kids from the states of Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. And just looking at the kids... Uh, that came in with with Brian Harson. Uh, that's not the case. I mean, he he got six kids. Uh, a couple of them came. One came as a graduate transfer. Another a junior college transfer. So I'm not going to say he went into recruiting states for those kids. Of the remaining four uh, that he signed, uh, looking at these kids, uh, they were from Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, and North Carolina. So that's way down. I mean, that's down below. That's around 50% or whatever from just those three states. And he has said that they will be going further west uh, for kids. I think Texas will become a huge market for Harson, where he's had success before. And I'm sure he's looking at dominating something. And maybe that's the place to do it, to sort of outflank um, what Nick Saban's doing in Alabama because that's really the standard uh, that he's got to tend to. I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Kingdom of Pod. Uh, rate, review, pass it along. You can also subscribe to it so I can email these to you. I also email out uh, different interviews at times through the kingdomofpod.mailchimpsites.com. Uh, you can sign up there, and then stuff will just be emailed to you, or you can continue to get this podcast uh, like uh, you know a- Apple uh, Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. So please rate, review it, tell your friends about it. I do appreciate Tim Leonard for joining me today. It was good to talk to Tim. Wish him the best of luck at the Central Florida job. That's it for the Kingdom of Pod. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. 